This is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 to 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. Well, it's great to see everyone this morning, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. Today we wrap up this journey that we've been on since last August, where we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. As you recall, this is one of Jesus' first recorded sermons. He's in his mid-twenties. He'd been recently baptized, spent 40 days in the desert where he had fasted and where he had been tempted by the devil. He was moving about this region of Galilee and Syria, teaching, healing, and assembling this group of disciples. He brings them to this hill known as Karn Hattin. It's near Capernaum. It's on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus teaches about the truth of God's kingdom, the crowds begin to gather to listen in. And as we've noted throughout this series, Jesus turns their worlds upside down with his message. Because the things that the world prizes, God despises. And the things that God prizes, the world despises. Why? Because of the damage that sin has caused. It casts a dark shadow over the entirety of our lives. All that we say, all that we think, all that we do is colored by this insidious nature of sin because it distorts truth the way God designed it to be. And that's why we can feel so out of place at times. It's because we're not made for this world. God is shaping us for his kingdom. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do, to usher in his kingdom in fulfillment of a new covenant, a promise God had made through Jeremiah and other prophets to forgive the sins of his people and to remember them no more. So this Sermon on the Mount contained in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7 that we've been going over for the last seven months, it's huge. It's actually a really big deal. And no doubt, Jesus' teaching has been a challenge to all of us. He started with the Beatitudes to illustrate the character of God's kingdom in a word, humility. Then Jesus gave us our identity by charging us to be the salt and light of the earth. He also made it very clear that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. Then he gave us six examples to show us how our internal intentions are equally as important as our external actions. For example, he equated the internal intention of anger to the physical act of murder. And the same thing with lust and adultery. And then he focused on several other really convicting topics like divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving our enemies. Jesus warned us against calling us to our acts of worship. Whenever we try to bring attention to ourselves, whenever we're doing things like giving or praying or fasting, we're to do them in private. He also directed that we're not to store up treasures on earth and that we're especially not to worry. We're supposed to place our faith in him. And then he taught us to not crawl up on his throne, sitting in judgment 
on other people, especially to the point of condemnation. He promised that when we ask, we'll receive. When we seek, we'll find. When we knock, the door will be opened. And he was referring to the things of his kingdom, in particular, the Holy Spirit, who convicts, counsels, and comforts us. He called us to treat our neighbor the way we want to be treated. And then he spoke of this narrow gate that leads to the kingdom. Of course, the past few weeks, Jesus has drawn our attention to the finality of eternal judgment and how we're to watch out for false prophets. We're not to let them deceive us along the way of that narrow path. And then Jesus called us to check ourselves to ensure that we are not living a life of self-deception too. That we aren't placing our faith in the words that we profess, what we feel, what we know, and what we do. So we don't hear those dreaded words on the great day of judgment, I never knew you. Because placing our faith in anything other than Jesus alone is foolish. It's like building our house on sinking sand. And then today, Matthew closes out the Sermon on the Mount by turning us away from the teaching and turning us toward the teacher himself. So there's hope today. It's a positive message. So let's ask for God's help, and then we'll wrap up this seventh-month journey that we've been on. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, grant us. For Jesus' sake, amen. So as Matthew shifts our focus to Jesus, the teacher, he begins by describing the crowd's reaction. They were astonished. What a great word. In the original language, the word is ekpleso. It means to be amazed, blown away, shocked, overwhelmed. And I trust I'm not alone in feeling that way over the past few months, but especially the last couple of weeks. It's as if Jesus is calling into question everything that's become so routine in our faith, because it's so easy to allow the way the world operates to bleed over into how we operate as a church. The world calls us to be self-reliant, to earn our way. And as we learned last week, that clearly carries over to our faith. We want to be self-reliant in our faith. The world lulls us into complacency, where we half-step it. And of course, that too carries over to our faith. And before we know it, we built our faith around self instead of around Jesus. We make church about what we like and what we want out of it instead of what we put into it. And even more importantly, what Jesus actually wants for his church. It's so easy to become self-deceived, become hearers of the word, but not doers of the word, where we are in a relationship with our loving master Jesus as his obedient servant, where he's the source of our strength, he's the substance of our work, and he's the object of all of our endeavors. And so when confronted with the truth of Jesus' words, they were astonished, just like we have been. 
Now, it's interesting to note what it was about Jesus that astonished them. Because while his teaching was convicting, we see here in the text that they weren't astonished because of his content. It wasn't his verbal skills, his logic, his stories, his physical presence, or his charisma. It was simply because of his authority. It was how he spoke. It's who he's claiming to be by the words that he chose. He spoke as one who had authority. So let's take a minute to recall we learned about this word authority back when we studied it in the fall. Remember, it's bigger than strength or power or might. Think of an NFL lineman. They're strong. They're powerful. They're mighty human beings. Their necks are bigger than the waistline of most of the referees. And yet those puny little referees wearing pinstripes have the authority to penalize these hulking beasts. They pull out that yellow flag. They can make their day miserable. They can even toss them out of the game. Just think about the difference between might and authority. Authority has the ultimate say in things. It's vastly bigger than strength or power or might. So what the crowd observed that day some 2,000 years ago astonished them because he spoke with authority. Particularly since Jesus was presumably just an ordinary carpenter from Nazareth without any formal religious training. And when we look back over the Sermon on the Mount, we can actually see Jesus is asserting his authority the entire time he's preaching. His authority as a teacher, his authority as the Christ, his authority as judge, and his authority as God. So we're going to look back over the Sermon on the Mount briefly, and we're going to look through and see how his words demonstrate this. Let's first take a look at Jesus' authority as a teacher. You see, hearing Jesus teach would have been really strange or odd to the hearers back then in the crowd. Because back then, the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would teach something, and then they would conclude by saying, thus says the Lord. Because they used the words of sacred scripture to teach. And there's nothing wrong with that. That was their job, was to teach people what God had said. In fact, we find the phrase, thus says the Lord, 423 times in scripture. But Jesus never said, thus says the Lord, not even once. Instead, he said, for I tell you. Check out Matthew 5.20. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, for I tell you two more times when he teaches the crowd about worrying. Then he follows up this statement that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees with six examples. And in each of the six examples, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Check out verse 27 through 29. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus repeats those same words, but I say to you, a total of six times with each of these examples. So this crowd had always been taught by Jewish teachers directly from sacred scripture. Thus says the Lord. 
And then this simple carpenter named Jesus taught them by saying, for I tell you, but I say to you. Can you imagine how astonishing that must have been? Who's this guy that teaches with such authority? But Jesus didn't just have authority as another teacher. He had authority as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior. He all but comes right out and proclaims this truth in Matthew 5.17 when he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Old Testament law and prophets repeatedly spoke of a forthcoming Christ, a Messiah who would establish the new covenant, a promise from God to send a Savior, the Christ, who would deliver God's people from their sins. Jesus speaking as though he is the Christ. But as we now know, Jesus didn't just teach salvation as the Christ. He actually provided it by dying on the cross as the Christ. And then he would grant it by offering it as a gift of grace as the Christ. You see, Jesus has been speaking as the Christ from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, one of his first recorded sermons. When he taught the Beatitudes, Jesus spoke of knowing who would enter the kingdom of God. He declared, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He knows who goes. He's the Christ. Likewise, he reinforced his role as the Christ when he described the wide path and the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You see, he knows who and how many enter the kingdom of God. And he spoke as only one could who had the authority as the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior. He was standing right in front of them. So no wonder they were astonished. Next, we see Jesus spoke in ways that affirm he is also the authority as judge of all mankind. Jesus specifically mentions Judgment Day in Matthew 7, 22 through 23, when he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus declared that he will be the one deciding each case on the great day of judgment as to who enters the kingdom of God. This text also suggests that he will also be the basis by which we're judged, whether he knows us or not, if we have a relationship with him, where he is our loving master and we're his obedient servant. And finally, our verdict and sentence on that day of judgment will also have to do with him. We'll either be with Jesus for all eternity in heaven or banished from Jesus for all eternity in hell. We also see Jesus' authority as judge in the context of the house built on rock or sand. The house built on the rock of obedience in relationship with Jesus will stand after the storm of judgment by the house built on the sinking sands of disobedience, by those who do not have a relationship with Jesus, will fall in great 
will be the fall of it in the face of the storm of final judgment. Jesus asserts his authority as the judge of all mankind on the great day of final judgment. The day that no doubt humbled them like it humbles us. It's what shapes the entirety of our lives. And how shocking, how astonishing, the very judge himself is before their very eyes. And finally, we see Jesus having authority as God. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. First, Jesus uses this word, Lord. Now, this could either mean the divine Lord, or it could be used like we use the word, Sir, today, out of a, a matter of respect. As we discussed a few weeks back, when we look at the full context of Scripture, it's clearly the former. It's divine Lord, which speaks to Jesus' authority as God. People will call him Lord, Lord on the final day of judgment because he is indeed God, the Lord and the judge of all mankind. This is reinforced in the same text when Jesus refers to God as my Father, which is in the singular possessive. So Jesus is declaring that he is the very Son of God the Father. And then we see Jesus specifically say, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Now, the crowd knew that God's words were contained in Scripture, and they were to be obeyed. And so here, Jesus is basically saying his words are on par with God the Father's words, because they're also to be obeyed. What's more, when we contrast it with what we learned in verse 21 above, Obeying Jesus' words are equivalent to doing the will of his Father. So Jesus is clearly asserting his authority as God. So no wonder the crowd was so astonished. So it's easy to see these last two verses of Scripture, and you're like, what's in here? Actually, in many ways, they're so vital because they point us to the speaker himself. If not for who is giving this sermon... It would probably just be passed off as another one of those ancient manuscripts. But this wasn't just a teacher or a prophet. It was the Messiah, God's only son, speaking on divine authority as a teacher, the Christ, judge, and God, who came to seal the new covenant and usher in God's kingdom by declaring that unless we're in a personal relationship with Jesus, we're outside the kingdom. You see, if you take this message as coming from the scribes or the Pharisees back in the day, or as simply a message coming from me as a pastor or from our church, then you can take it or leave it. It's totally up to you. But this didn't come from us. It came from Jesus himself, God the Son, with all of his divine authority. So it is absolute truth, which means there's no shades of gray here. It's either the wide path that leads to eternal destruction, disobedience to Jesus' teaching and not in a relationship with him, or it's the well-lighted narrow path that leads to the kingdom of God, fully dependent on Jesus, obedient to his word, and in a loving relationship with him. In many ways, the whole point of this sermon Jesus gave is captured 
in these last two verses because they highlight how Jesus has actually been calling our attention to himself throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount as he has proclaimed his authority as teacher, the Christ, judge, and God. Do you see how the entire Sermon on the Mount is a clear call for us to look unto Jesus in a personal way, as in a relationship? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Is he your best friend? Does that image up there remind you of time that you spend with him? Because that's the reason he came and died on the cross for our sins. Because no matter how hard we try, we simply don't have any answer for the sin in our lives. No one has ever been able to keep the law. Scripture says, there is no one righteous, not even one, thus says the Lord, except Jesus. And to make this, to me, it seems to be the most profound point of all is the fact that there's this guy, Jesus, who's perfectly right. He doesn't deserve any wrath of judgment. And then there's us. We deserve the wrath. And he drinks that cup for us. How profound is that? We can't keep the law perfectly. He can. And yet he still takes on our punishment by dying on the cross and shedding his blood for us so that we could one day stand righteous before God the Father. And if that weren't enough, he then gives us the Holy Spirit. What an amazing gift to help us love him back and always calling us to obedience. Do you see how much Jesus loves us and why it's so offensive to him when we trust in ourselves, in our words, or our works for our salvation? So if we remember nothing more about the Sermon on the Mount, I hope we'll all remember that it is a call to look unto Jesus. And that is one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit, to always point us to Jesus. So if you've wrestled with the Sermon on the Mount, especially the last couple of weeks, I hope you'll find encouragement from these words that Charles Spurgeon's wrote. These are very impactful. I reflect on these often. Let me read them to you. It is always the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite. He is constantly trying to make us look at ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You do not have the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self, and we will never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is everything. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, although that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits, period. Therefore, do not look so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Do not look to your hope, 
but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Do not look to your faith, but to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. We will never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our deeds, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not we are, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we are to overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep your eye simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your mind. When you waken in the morning, look to Jesus. When you lie down at night, look to Jesus. Do not let your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him, and he will never fail you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word over these past seven months. Thank you for loving us, God, for sending us Jesus to shed his blood in our place so that we might be in a right relationship with you. Thank you for sending us the Holy Spirit to convict, to counsel, and comfort us, always calling us to look unto Jesus. We ask, we seek, and knock for your help over the coming weeks as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus' resurrection and our victory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So for our response time today, I want to take a minute or two to explain our next steps as a church. You can't finish up something as epic as a Sermon on the Mount without having some next steps for us to take together towards Christ. And that is our mission as a church. Well, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It's the start of the Lent season, 40 days to prepare for Easter. And I realize many come from Catholic backgrounds, but Lent is a season for all Christians. It's not just for Catholics. We're going to use this time as a church to reflect on all that we've learned and to prepare for what lies ahead. Abby made this great Lenten booklet. Hopefully everyone got a copy. If not, grab one on your way out. This is going to guide us over the next six weeks. We'll also have it posted online, um, but we'll have them here throughout really all the next six weeks in the back. We're going to kick everything off with an in-person and an online live stream Ash Wednesday service at 6 o'clock on Wednesday evening. Each Wednesday throughout Lent, we're inviting everyone to participate in a sun-up to sundown fast. Now, that is not all 40 days. It's just Wednesdays only. It's seven Wednesdays, starting this Wednesday with Ash Wednesday, and it leads all the way up to the Wednesday of Holy Week. This booklet gives guidance on how we'll fast, both in terms of people with health considerations, but also in terms of a fasting focus that we'll have each Wednesday. We're going to break the fast with communion by coming to the sanctuary at any point in time between 5.30 and 7 on Wednesdays. So it's come and go as you like. You'll come in the back, find your favorite pew, bring your booklet with you. There'll be some meditations and prayers for you in there. Spend some time doing that. There'll be a few things on the overhead as well. You'll make your way to the front whenever you're ready. We'll have a couple different stations for communion. You can then receive communion to break the fast. We'll also have some elders and staff in the back rooms back in here who can pray with you. Scripture calls us to have the elders available to pray for people. 
So if you want some prayer time with the elders and our staff, by all means, fit that into your schedule. And then we'll ask you to work your way to the front porch. As Tyler mentioned, there are three crosses. Two of them are in the ground right now. One's just kind of sitting there. We're going to take that middle cross out, and we're going to spend some time with our child care kids over the next couple of weeks. They're each going to put their name on the back of that cross, and then they're going to install it in the ground. And Rick and others in the church that work with the child care team will be working with those kids each day as they leave school to go get the bus, get on the bus. There'll be a little devotion on the front porch to talk a little bit about that. Staff will be available to work with them as well. So what we'd like you to do is make your way to the front porch after all of this and just pray over some of these kids. Pray before the cross. And then, of course, you can make your way back to, the, to your vehicle and be, of course, praying for the church as you do that as well. For our online crew, we're going to hold a Zoom call at 6 o'clock on Wednesday so we can break the fast together. So that means if you know you're not going to be here and you're going to be joining us online, we'd encourage you to grab some communion elements before you leave. They're in those prepackaged cups we've been using the last few weeks. So you can grab a couple of those. Carol will be at the back. You can also go online to the website and request to receive communion. Our deacons will deliver it to you if you're local to the area, or if you live far away, we'll ship it to you. We just want everyone to be able to participate in this time of communion together. Lent ends on the Thursday of Holy Week, and of course we'll hold our traditional Good Friday service. It'll be a tenebrae type service here in the sanctuary. It'll also be streamed online. Our Sundays leading up to Easter, we're going to be studying Psalm 51, David's famous psalm of repentance. So all of these events are designed to help us prepare to celebrate all that we do celebrate at Easter time with the Lord's resurrection, responding to all that we've learned on the Sermon on the Mount, and to seek God's help with our next steps as a church, with all this let's go effort that we're talking about. So throughout this Lenten season, you will be able to sign up for these pillars. We've been talking about them the last couple of months. Hopefully you've been praying through them. It is our hope that you'll find one you can really contribute to and another one that maybe you want to be stretched in a little bit. But sign up for one, two, or three, however many you want to sign up for. And we'll do that throughout the Lenten season online. I know some of you have already done that, and that's great. So we'll kick this off in earnest right after Easter, where we'll move forward in each of these pillars, kind of building up and strengthening the church along the same lines that the early church did after Jesus was resurrected and the Holy Spirit came and then the church lit on fire. So we're excited about this. We're really hopeful that all of you will actively participate in all that the church has planned throughout this entire Lenten season. And we hope to see everybody on Wednesday.